Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Nick Jones of the band Heavy Stereo. Heavy Stereo formed in 1993 and was signed to Creation Records. The band featured Gem Archer, Craig Nesbitt, Pete Downing and obviously Nick Jones on drums. Nick joins me to talk about the 25-year anniversary of their debut album, Deja Voodoo. Nick goes into great detail about his musical influences, how he got into music, moving to London to play in bands with his brother and also being recruited by Gem to join the band. I'll be back as per usual at the end of the interview to talk about all the ways you can support the podcast. But in the meantime, here's Nick. Welcome to the podcast, Nick Jones. How are you? I am good. I'm good. I'm still alive. <laughs> Whereabouts are you? I'm actually in, uh, in Paris, in France. And what's it like being in the EU? <laughs> uh, well, we've all, we're all in the EU still. It's just a, it's just a piece of paper now, isn't it? Or yeah. several pieces of paper. That's oh, great. It always has been great. <laughs> when did you move out to uh, France? I came out, well, I came, moved to France just over five years ago. And, uh, and what you've been up to since... Uh, since moving here? Yeah, yeah. Um, basically trying to get things happening musically, but it's quite hard. It's quite slow. And did you decide to sort of pursue drumming in a different way then after after heavy stereo um well after heavy stereo sort of folded um i i kind of i played in various bands in london and kind of tried to get somewhere with them and it didn't really work out but um until uh the kind of early 2000s and i joined a band that became the jim jones review and i did that for eight years so i kind of it's funny, like the heavy stereo experience was like a kind of pre it preempted the Jim Jones review. <laughs> I mean, I, I I kind of the J I was in um, heavy stereo for about three three and a half years or something, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a big. I mean, it was in a huge learning curve, certainly in the world of music uh, for me, um, having my first record deal and that kind of stuff. So it kind of set me up really for for years later for when I was in Jim Jones Review where we had a it was weird it was a much bigger thing than than heavy stereo <laughs> but what what kind of got you into music in the first place and why drums do you think um well I mean I, I'm quite lucky in that um, my dad was a bass player back in the the kind of 60s and early 70s um and then he also um became a journalist as well a music journalist he actually was a journalist for Melody Maker Ah. But um, I mean, his his band, like they recorded an album uh, in London for Decca uh, in, in a studio in, what was it called? Um, Sound, oh, I wish I could remember the name of it. Anyway, he had a band called The Human Beast. And uh, weirdly enough, it became a kind of, it's nowadays, there are vinyl copies of their albums, like a real cult, a cult hit with like mega boffin fans, you know, geeks. Ah. So like copies of those records, original records go for like, you know, silly money, like record collector. I think they're sort of one and a half thousand, two thousand pounds or something. So music was in his blood. And uh, and then as both me and my older brother got older, my brother is, became a guitarist and he joined a band called Hipsway from Glasgow. Yeah. We were big in the 80s. And I think he definitely, when he started playing music, I kind of got inspired. I mean, we were both very lucky in that when we were kids, uh, 
we had really good family friends that were musicians and actors and stuff involved in theatre and television in Scotland, uh, in Edinburgh. And um, I think being around them when we were kids kind of definitely had an influence, you know. Mm. Uh, I mean, I actually worked for, for this guy, Dave McNiven, who was a sort of singer, songwriter, composer, actor, comedian, whatever, um, in, in Scottish theatre and TV and stuff. And he actually gave me my first break, really, probably, proper break, um, where I, I did some TV and, um, you know, TV recording, music recording in Glasgow, uh, which was good fun. And like, I did Naked Video and uh, Rabsy Nesbitt and things like that. Which oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I got to do like a, a festival show in the Edinburgh International Festival, which is like a rock musical. And that was uh, that was quite full on. So um, I had to learn a shitload of songs and uh, you know play drums in this huge, the original Corn Exchange as it's uh, as it's now a venue in, in Edinburgh mm. where big bands have played. Um, it was the first theatre thing that had ever been done there. So it was quite a quite an interesting experience to say the least. So that I did that till I was uh, in my kind of uh, that was about my mid twenties. And um, by that time, my brother had been playing in Hipsway for years and he'd been around the world and done quite a few albums and stuff. And uh, he needed a drummer to come to London to play three gigs because his, his, their drummer had disappeared to America to, to do a tour with another band. And they're like, shit, we got these gigs today. So Nick, do you fancy coming down? And it's like, okay. <laughs> so I went down to London, played three gigs and um, I ended up living there for 25 years. Do you find like it, there is in some in some ways that this London uh, myth? I mean, it, oh, the question I suppose I'm trying to ask is: Is it a myth that you can only really succeed if you're in London town? I don't think it's a myth. I think it's. I think you. I think in all areas of creativity, you can you can succeed uh, if you're really driven to want to do it. You know, um, mm. obviously. When I left Edinburgh, it wasn't like I'm leaving Edinburgh. It was like I'm going down there for a few weeks. Um, but it was it was a catalyst that made me realise that it was the best place to be for me at the time. Because in Scotland, the creativity, the world of creativity was kind of, it wasn't fantastic. Well, especially not in Edinburgh. Um, I mean, Glasgow was always the kind of the big brother. You know, there was always more stuff going on. It was like the kind of Manchester of Scotland, you know. Um, yeah. And that was actually, I spent, because I was doing these TV things, uh, I was spending quite a lot of time over there and my brother was living there as well. So, or had been living there, I think by that time he moved to London, but um, I got to know Glasgow pretty well. And it was actually on my list of potential places to move to. And it was just a chance to go into London to do these gigs that, uh, that changed my mind as it were, you know. But I think London can be a hard place as well. Obviously, it can be you can be very lucky and you can get the opportunities that you hope for and it goes well, or you can get the opportunities that you hope for and it goes badly. You know, um, it can go either way. I think nowadays now with the way the world's working and the way with obviously COVID's another thing, but um, because of the internet and stuff, people can connect better now, um, especially musicians with with fans and the industry and the publications and the um, other other musicians, other artists, you know. So we're here to talk about the 25 year anniversary of uh, Deja Vu, which is a, quite a coincidence because we've touched 
spaces again to chase up this uh, this interview and it just so happened to coincide with this release well exactly yes yeah. so um it is almost 25 years if not this week then over the next two weeks it's like 25 years since we released that record and, and what's what's your involvement been in in sort of putting that back out well i mean about uh sort of last summer uh during the first kind of big lockdown in france uh or pretty much the world i suppose um i was i was in the alps because my my wife is uh, her family have got a, a chalet there and we were kind of we were there just before the lockdown started so we were there for three months and oh, wow. we were in the, <laughs> the chalet in the savoie region which is near Ant lac annecy i don't know if you know the alps but it's beautiful beautiful place and yeah. uh we were in this chalet, just two of us, um, and we were doing stuff like we were working in the garden, getting fresh air all the time, going for walks, obviously within reason, given that there was a, a one kilometre radius that you were allowed to go, you know. Okay. Um, so we spent a lot of time there, and while I was there, I got a call from Gem, who said um, that this guy, Michael Mulligan from Demon Music, was, uh, was proposing to do a reissue of the record. And I was yeah. like, oh, great, brilliant. <laughs> he remembers us, you know. <laughs> of course, uh, over, the, sort of, over the weeks and months, uh, I realised that obviously he and Demon do loads of fantastic um, reissues, which uh, the more I've seen, the more I'm like, oh, right, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they're doing one a week. <laughs> that's how, uh, I mean, obviously I said, well, um, yeah, that's a great idea, fantastic. And I, I mean... The, one of the most frustrating things that has, that has been about doing this reissue is that I've not had access to all my um, my archive because yeah. I've got a couple of big boxes in my younger brother's garage in London, which have all my heavy stereo stuff in it. Mm. So, I mean, I was like the, the Bill Wyman. <laughs> okay. Heavy stereo. So I, I was collecting... Tickets, posters, flyers, free, you know, uh, laminates, like wristbands, whatever. All the stuff that we were, that most people just chucked away, probably. Um, I was keeping. Yeah. So I've got a big box somewhere, so I'll have to get that lot out. I'll have to get it back from, from London to, to France sometime, you know. Do you remember how, how you guys met and what those sort of formative rehearsals were like? Ah, totally. I mean, like I was saying earlier about uh, being, being in London to play with my brother. Um, I did three shows with them, and after that, I can't remember playing with them. We we played together for maybe a couple of years, and then for various reasons, we split up. And um, so I was like, I, I wasn't in a band, and I went off on holiday and came back and said, like, that's it. I'm gonna bloody find another band, and I did the classic pre-internet. I was I was buying Melody Maker and Enemy and looking in the classifieds, and lo and behold, I did a load of auditions with loads of really shitty bands and crappy rehearsal studios in London. And amongst that crap, I managed to find uh, Gem and the band. And I went and had an audition with them in, uh, in a little studio, like a garage near Alexandra Palace. And uh, it went well, I think. Uh, and Gem got back to me and said, do you want to come and have a you know, proper play with us? And I said, well, okay, well, come to my rehearsal studio, which was in King's Cross, where I've got my drums and we can have a proper play. So we had a play and uh, I think, I mean, I, I think Gem had already sort of decided that he was going to get me anyway, but um, we kind of had to play and then we went to the pub and, I, and they said, okay, so do you want to join? I was like, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, he said, okay, right, well, I'm on EMI, I'm on EMI Publishing, uh, we're doing demos, so let's go to Rathbone Place, to the studio, and carry on doing demos. And uh, during that time, we, um, we I think, Gem's A&R guy, who's, who you'll heard of probably, Mike Smith, who at the time was head of A&R at EMI Publishing in London. He, uh, he heard the recordings and he was like, oh, this is great. And he sent them off to, uh, he sent the cassettes off to, uh, to Andy Saunders, I think was the first person that received them, who was head of press at Creation at the time. And of course he let um, McGee and Dick Green and the rest of the company hear the recordings. And I think it was our second ever gig. I think we played, I think our first gig was in Cambridge, and then the second gig was uh, supporting Dodgy at the Lead Mill in Sheffield, yeah. and because uh, like they were friends of Dodgy anyway, there were connections. We were playing, and this guy came up to the band after the gig and said, "Hi, I'm Mark Bowen. I'm A and R at Creation Records. I love the gig sort of thing." And it kind of went from there. We carried on playing. Like our idea was to not play any gigs in London for, at first. Yeah. And eventually do, you know, when we were ready to do some shows in London. But um, by the 10th gig, which was in Harlow at Square, which is obviously sadly gone now, McGee, Dick Green, Andy Saunders, John, all the different people from the company were there. And McGee's like, well, I want to sign you guys. And they're like, okay. <laughs> and I think it was, it was a bit ironically, it was the 1st of April 1995 that we actually signed to creation. And so... And so was that a no-brainer for you guys in terms of, you know, the, the history with that label and, and its kudos in a way? Um, you know what? For me, I didn't know that much about Creation at the time. Obviously, I knew a few of the bands that were on Creation, but I didn't know uh, their kind of... There was quite a mystique in my mind anyway. Mm. Uh, Gem and Pete and Nez knew a lot more about uh, Creation than I did at that point. Um, and obviously, Gem had had his deal with uh, Food Records before that, so he was quite experienced in the old the industry a lot more than me. I mean, I'd done a lot of gigs and obviously some sessions and stuff, but um, it wasn't at the level that Gem Gem had, you know. Yeah. So it was like, all right, I'm going to sign you, says Alan McGee, you know. And uh, you know, here's the list of all the records. Uh, let me know from the warehouse, and you can have any of them. You know, so <laughs> it's a nice start, you know. Yeah. Because it's funny because um, like by the time that we played that tenth gig, uh, we it become a bit, it sounds cliched, but at the time it was a bit of a bidding war, you know, because we were actually the first band that Creation signed after Oasis. And obviously that was a huge, uh, huge boots to fill, you know, because mm. just as we were signing, I think that was just as Oasis fucking hit the world and, you know, blew it all up. Um, so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure from within the industry and media to kind of, uh, for us to kind of follow, follow after them, you know. Yeah, but the sound that you you guys generated and that on that album and was it already well established by the time you'd come on board and was was I say was Gem already you know very sure of his the path that he was wanted to follow musically? I think Gem, yeah, I think I mean Gem had been demoing before I I got involved um, a few of the songs anyway, and I think I think he said to me um, that. Actually, the name of the band, Heavy Stereo, came from a song title uh, originally. So he, he just thought, you know, it's, it just made sense. He used to have this uh, Phil Spector badge, which was like back to mono, you know, that a famous badge that Phil Spector used to wear. Mm -hmm. 
the the uh, that the wall of sounds you know coined. Um, I think yeah, he was always very sure of what he wanted to do. And obviously, I mean, the the kind of the music that we made, you know, ticked so many boxes with everyone because we were sort of taking influences from our from our record collections, you know. Mm. I mean, I was quite lucky because my dad was a journalist, you know, he interviewed a lot of quite interesting people, you know, over the years. And um, he used to play me, like, and my brother loads of stuff on either cassette in the car or like on seven inch singles, like rock and roll stuff, like, Little Richard, um, the Beach Boys, uh, uh, Steely Dan, the Beatles, Stones, um, all sorts of great stuff. Uh, so it kind of definitely, it must have gone through my skin somehow, you know. Yeah. Like rock and roll. I mean, I'm always going to want to play rock and roll. It's it's just it's just the way I am. You know, some people try and play other kinds of music and it's just not the, the place that they feel comfortable in, you know. <laughs> Yeah. With Gem, you know, he definitely um, had a, a, a vision of what he wanted the band to be like, you know. And it wasn't like it was doing anything that was ticking boxes on the scene at that time, because it was a lot raw and, and so, uh, you know, a lot more of that glam rock yeah. element to it. It wasn't ticking the Britpop boxes that were, you know. Well, I mean, that's it. I mean, obviously, Britpop is a bit of a weird word now because it incorporates so many different bands, you know. The, mm. the, there was definitely... I suppose like the Britpop, the Camden scene, whatever you want to call it, you know, that was uh, a lot of that was just manufactured by the, the bloody the journalists. Because um, mm. it's a way of getting people to talk about stuff, you know, a bit like the when the Oasis versus Blur fucking stuff started, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I mean, it's to sell sell magazines and papers and records, I suppose. But um, especially when you think that I think Noel and... Uh, Blur and Noel and Damon are pretty good friends, aren't they? So, yeah, so they had a problem with each other. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's weird. Like, we got slagged off a bit because we were quite glammy, you know, which was, I thought, was quite ironic because, uh, you know, <laughs> Travis came along and they were massive and they were totally glammy, just like we were. You know, it's like, come on, you know, what's the what's the difference? Yeah, their first album's got lots of those elements in it as well, isn't it? Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we all like T-Rex and Bowie and, uh, you know, loads of other sort of stomp a um, bands, you know. We wanted, we always wanted people to dance, you know. You know, like, not all of our songs are like the speed of, say, Chinese Burn or whatever, you know, like, a lot of them are a bit a bit groovier. We always wanted to try to be quite groovy, you know. What can you remember about the, the, the recording sessions and the production of that album then? I mean, it must have been quite exciting to get in and get it. Oh, and get, God, get some, what's, yeah. what's yeah. not to like going into Ray Davis's <laughs> studio, you know, Conk with an amazing Valve desk in, uh, in North London and, uh, you know, all these beautiful old microphones and all this wood panelling and all the, you know, the smell of the, the valves, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's like, it's kind of something that you never even could dream about, you know? Yeah. Great. I mean, we started at Conk. But I mean, the weird thing was when we were doing the record, I mean, at the time, I suppose loads of bands were just because of the way the industry was going at that time. It was a very live music time, wasn't it? Loads mm. of people were playing live gigs. So there was loads of festivals and tours and all that. So we were kind of going from the studio to a tour and back again, you know, and then we'd be doing like when we were in the studio, even we were getting asked to kind of make decisions on video shoots and photo sessions and Gem was having to do interviews in between vocal takes and <laughs> you know all that kind of stuff it was a multimedia experience and this is even before the internet existed you know yeah 
So it was quite, it was quite, uh, it was full on, you know, actually in, in, in retrospect, it was only about three, three years really that I was doing it anyway. Obviously for cameras a bit longer, but um, it was kind of very compacted, you know. Mm. We started in Conk and then we ended up uh, going to uh, Wessex Studios, which you might or might not have heard of. It's where, um, it was an old church. It's, it's not a studio anymore, but it's where uh, Nevermind the Bollocks and uh, London Calling were recorded. Ah, okay. When you went onto the road with it and thereafter then, I mean, was the, the following generated quite quickly or did you, what was the tour plan for that, for that album? Well, we'd already been touring kind of solidly for like about a year before that record came out. And uh, actually we'd, so by the time it came out, we, a lot of the fan base knew the record, you know. So, I mean, we'd been touring with like bands like uh, Supergrass and Menswear and Blue Tones and Cast and Gene. And we did the tour with the Cardigan. We did the Enemy Brats tour, you know, with the Cardigans and Blue Tones. And so we'd kind of been picking up an audience, the classic, you know, scenario. You support bands that are popular and grab their audience, you know. Uh, it so it was, it was fantastic. I mean, Amazing times, really, when you think about it. I mean, I was in my um, sort of mid to late 20s when that happened, so it was quite a special uh, a special time for me, anyway. Any sort of festivals uh, stick out, Nick? Uh, Glastonbury, <laughs> um, Tea in the Park, uh, V Festival in Phoenix, uh, what else? Uh, Reading Leeds, you know, all, all the big ones. The way, the, I mean, the biggest gig that actually we did was, I mean, we supported Oasis three times. So the first show we did with them, because obviously we were label mates and we'd got on well with them and obviously Gem had become really good friends with Noel, um, which obviously helped in the future for him. Um, we, we did a gig with them in Cardiff Arena, which was, I think, uh, 8,000 or something. I don't know what capacity that place is which was pretty amazing, uh, open for them. And then we did uh, The Point in Dublin, which was incredible too. Uh, and then the, the, the biggest one we did was uh, Loch Lomond, the weekend before Nebworth. Yeah. And that was like 45,000 people, I think, we played there. So that was pretty special. Yeah. <laughs> and what, I mean, what... it's like being on stage and you know that you've got a... P uh, the monitors are louder than most, most venues' PAs, you know? Yeah. Were you going with the flow, Nick, then? Or were, you, were you nervous? And, and how was it affecting you at this sort of, at this time? Uh, I think I took it on my stride, really. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was, it's quite, it's weird. It's like nerves are one of those weird things, which if you don't have them, there's something wrong, you know? I think those years playing in heavy stereo, because we did quite a lot of touring, it, it was an amazing um, education, you know, just not just in music, just in life and what you can do and what you can uh, achieve, you know? Mm. Even, if, even if it ultimately has a kind of time date stamp on it, you know, not, not all things last forever. Um, certainly you think you realise that when you get older. Um, I, I look back and I think, bloody hell, that's amazing <laughs> to think what I did then. And was there pressure to keep going and writing? and Or did you feel it? I, I don't know how... In how involved in the writing process you were for sort of subsequent sort well, of ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, a lot of the ideas, I mean, when I started playing with them, I actually spent a lot of time just with Gem, just the two of us, like uh, kind of pre-White uh, Stripes, you know, just drums and guitar hmm. and vocals. 
working on the, the rhythms and the and the um the parts you know on the songs again before we even were necessarily all playing together so that was that was quite interesting that was the first time i'd ever really done that with, a, with a music, another musician in a band just being the two of us you know i think that's quite important it was good because obviously gem knew all the songs how he wanted them to be and i mean he used to do demos on his on his little port studio and play all the instruments you know mm. uh which was really beneficial because when you're in a studio you know certainly a rehearsal studio you're there for hours and hours and hours and it makes a big difference if you've already worked on a lot of the parts before you all get together and you can put it all to, into kind of context and especially when you get into the studio it's really about capturing the performances and as everyone knows the drummer is the one that's at the start for me that's when the pressure was big because you're just you're hoping that the performance is there you know they can change the the vocals they can change the bass the guitar later on you know but as long as the drum take is there then you can relax you know you can sit back and have a beer you know yeah and so with the second album that that never made it then i mean how far along did you get with it did you sort of have songs demoed well i mean gem's got he's got i'm sure he's got cupboards full of uh cassettes somewhere of all those recordings that we had uh yeah. we did we probably had like three quarters if not most of an album in ideas at least in ideas form ready ish mm. before uh like you know um creation kind of pulled the plug on us and what happened next uh well we carried on working uh on on the music um yeah. we were quite lucky we we had uh, our manager um had a house which we nicknamed shabby road um which was <laughs> because it was near abbey road and it was a house that he bought i think he was going to develop it but it was empty so he said oh you guys can just rehearse in the house if you want so we got all, all the gear set up board like a tape machine from a friend and like that was our studio you know but yeah, we yeah. didn't um, unfortunately we could only play during the day because uh, of the neighbors sort of thing so so we couldn't play too loud so it wasn't proper full on full band playing it was quite a more mellow kind of approach to recording you know but i mean i i I did that for, I don't know, about nine or 10 months or something, I think, um, after we'd got dropped. And then I just said, well, I'm going to have to do some other stuff, you know. And like, I think everyone went off and did other things. And Gem, um, I don't know who Gem played with at that point, but he, he did loads of various interesting things, I think, before he got the call from No. Mm. And like Pete went off and played with... Um, corner shop and uh i can't remember who nez was playing with at that point but um everyone just went and did their own thing you know and is it something you would ever consider revisiting do you think is it or has it ever been mentioned i don't know it's 25 years ago isn't it <laughs> I don't I like... At, like when i look at the photographs and the like the videos i just think well yeah look at those young kids you know they're out yeah the it's a, it's a weird question to ask because I know it's difficult because a lot of um, bands uh, are still going in some capacity or they reform to do a, a tour. I'm just wondering whether it was something you ever you guys ever got together. It's some sort of romantic idea of getting back together and and, and doing some shows or or anything. We, we didn't fall out, you know. Do you mean it's like some bands when they when they stop playing with each other have horrendous uh, divorces, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like being married to four people. <laughs> yeah. um, and we never had that, so that's definitely an advantage if, if it was ever discussed, you know. Yeah. 
But I mean, obviously, I mean, I realise Gen's got uh, quite a lot of uh, stuff to do. You know, he's still playing with Noel, as far as I know, and uh, I mean, he's probably doing all sorts of stuff. So I don't know. It'd be quite funny if we got asked to do it. Might have to put a wig on or something. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go back to the 25th uh, anniversary of this deja vu yeah. do what's yeah. what's what's the the reissue got the uh, additional features if you like right well the, the vinyl is 180 gram clear vinyl and it's 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 all the original album if i can remember rightly and loads of sort of extra sleeve notes and photos and stuff but the the cd is a double cd so that's got the album and all the like a load of all this all the singles because uh, like for instance sleep freak was never on the album our first single you know that wasn't on the album so we've got all the singles and all the b-sides and i think there's a few other tracks i think there's like 25 tracks or something like that. i can't remember the exact right i've not got a copy of it yet so <laughs> <laughs> you think you'd have a, you, you should have first dibs yeah i think it's in the post <laughs> um, and also actually one thing that is quite interesting about it is that because of the internet it's going to be for the first time ever it's going to be available as far as i know sony are going to be sticking it on like all the platforms you know like uh spotify and apple and you know all the places so people are going to be able to hear it digitally for the first time which is kind of cool and so when you look back nick on everything is there any aspect of it that that, that you regret or or is it, or do you not have regrets at all from that period I think for a while I maybe had a few regrets, but um, they're not based on anything other than, God, I wish we could have had a bit more success, which sounds like a cliche. Yeah. But it's true, you know, and especially when I think of all the people that were kind of quite busy in those days, doing, being musicians, you know, having that chance, you know, being able to sign that piece of paper and get the chance to, to kind of see the world and like, entertain people and and have a laugh and would you have a highlight then uh, nick going back to heavy stereo what was the kind of the the, the biggest highlight for you i suppose it would be playing supporting oasis at loch lomond was was pretty special i mean not many people get a chance to do that that's pretty amazing nick it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you thank you so much for taking the time out to to chat to me about heavy stereo and everything else oh, i'm glad you remember i mean when i ever whenever i search heavy stereo i get all these reggae things come up on the internet. <laughs> <It's very funny. laughs> well nick again thanks so much yeah nice one take care same to you cheers mate bye a massive thanks to Nick for joining me on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to him about Heavy Stereo. And if you want to get your hands on that reissue, it's a beautiful thing. Um, just hit the link which I've put in the show notes. It'll take you to all the online retailers and so you can pick one up from one of those. And obviously the digital copy is available as well. And again, a massive thank you to all you guys for listening every episode. I really do appreciate it. If you haven't done so already, just do one of the three of these things. It really does help. If you want to follow me on social media, just make sure you search for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Let me know you're there and listening. If you want to say thank you financially, as you know, I run this podcast without any adverts or sponsors, and I'm not part of a network. So if you're feeling generous, I've posted a link to the coffee page and you can buy me a virtual coffee. That'll just help massively in terms of the running fees for the podcast. If you haven't rated the show, if you go to Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star rating and if you're feeling extra charitable, leave a short review. 
because as I say every week, it does really help. Well, that's it from me from another episode and hopefully I'll be back next week. In the meantime, take care. <laughs>